There are wounds that never show on the body that are deeper and more hurtful than anything that bleeds. Laurel K. Hamilton This week on Point Black. Black women are more likely to be sexually assaulted. They're more likely not to be believed by their healthcare provider, which impacts individuals' well-being. So what we're seeing is the impact of stress, racialized stress, as well as sexism. Hello, everybody. Happy Friday and welcome to another episode of Point Black. Why is Tashika dancing? <laughs> the recent experiences have without a doubt been traumatic for the black community. So on today's episode, we're going to be diving deeper into the conversation on trauma. And with me, as usual, is my dancing co-host, Tashika. Hi, everyone. Hi, Camilla. Listen, leave my dancing be. I'm creating my own joy. Okay. Nope. So this week, we're going to be looking at the impact of trauma on Black women specifically, but not just as a result of the race-based trauma that we experience, but just navigating life as Black women. And to help us better understand trauma and its impact on our day-to-day lives, joining the conversation this week is Melissa Taylor. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for agreeing to be with us this week. Um, I'll give you the opportunity to introduce yourself. I'm a social worker and psychotherapist. So part of my private practice, I focus on providing support for people who have experienced trauma. And I also work part-time in the nonprofit sector where I support folks that have experienced domestic violence as well as sexual assault. Great. Before we jump into the conversation, we usually have a check-in amongst ourselves and with our guests to see how we're doing and where we are in terms of just, you know, our well-being with the unrest that's happening. How are you? Um, This week has been relatively uh, at a better pace for me. Uh, The past few weeks have been extremely busy, uh, not just on the personal front of things, but also on the professional front. So just sort of balancing how people are responding to what's happening um, Mm -hmm. in America in terms of the civil um, movement. Uh, So it's been a lot. This week feels like at a more manageable pace. It doesn't feel Mm -hmm. like... I'm constantly running up a flight of stairs, um, Mm -hmm. but I'm still feeling the impact indeed. I can definitely understand that. I was saying to Camelia that for this week, I feel like me prioritizing rest is okay. But before I felt like I really had to be, whereas now I'm like, okay. And I think that social media has also helped with that because before it was highlighting, you know, all the things that's happening, but then the mood kind of shifted into preserving yourself and rejuvenating yourself and resting as resistance. And I felt like that gave me the permission I needed to say, okay, it's okay to step back. It's okay to rest and prioritize, you know, your mental health. So you're better able to continue for an extended period as opposed to that reaching exhaustion almost immediately, right? For me, I find like I'm a lot triggered these days. Like I know, like I have trigger words and I know what those are, but like every day I'm discovering that other things are like simple things are triggering me and I can't mm-hmm. figure like why is it I am so triggered? So 
So I'm in the space now where I'm trying to figure out like what is happening? Why am I like on the edge all the time about the simplest things? I think that's something we might actually get into in this discussion because we're going to be talking about black women and trauma and then more specifically looking at racial trauma. We want to start the conversation a little bit more broadly in terms of just defining what trauma is, because I feel like it's a word that gets used a lot, but there isn't like an understanding of what it actually entails. Mm-hmm. So for you in your practice, what would you look at trauma as being? This is a really good question. Um, it's a word that is used more often than I've ever seen it used before. But the thing that surprises people all the time, trauma has very little to do with the event. So, you know, we can all be in the same room, witness in the same car accident, and like maybe I'm the only one that is traumatized by that event, you know? So it's how our brain essentially processes the information. Um, Typically when we're stressed, our our heart rate goes up, you know, our stress response comes online. Um, So that's when we may freeze or we may flee or we may fight. Um, so this is a normal stress response. So normally when people get stressed, they get like a little bleep in their radar and they come back down to their normal. Individuals that are traumatized by event, often their body doesn't have an opportunity to go down to that rest. So they'll be on high alert. So whether it's like fight, flight or freeze, their body becomes immobilized in that stress response. So it's difficult for them to re-engage with their normal state of being. Um, So that's largely, you know, when we're talking about um, trauma, we're talking about how the person's mind has processed that event, essentially. What would you say causes the experience to be traumatic for one person as opposed to another? big question that no one can really give a linear answer to. Um, Luckily, there's been a lot of great research that recognizes that children with adverse childhood experiences, so that could be, um, you know, the obvious in terms of physical or sexual abuse. It could also be a parent with mental health disabilities or misuse of substance. So and the questions goes on and on. But what it does recognize that people that has a pre-exposure to trauma are at greater risk of developing post-traumatic stress syndrome or having several occurrences like maybe feeling anxious or depressed. So on Point Black, our target audience is Black women and girls. Do you find that trauma presents differently or there's a heightened risk for traumatic experience for Black women? Yeah, so for Black women, the experience is quite different in the sense that we're dealing with gender and we're dealing with race. So essentially we're dealing with sexism, we're um, 
dealing with racism on both fronts. Um, mm-hmm. So black women are more likely to be sexually assaulted. Um, they're more likely to be in a domestic violence relationship. They're more likely not to be believed by their healthcare provider when they talk about physical complaints or even, you know, a general nausea or are feeling anxious. Um, these are populations that often when they do enter the doctor's room, they're, they're not taken seriously, which impacts individuals' well-being. So sometimes largely what we are seeing when we look at those stats that point to, you know, black women be a higher risk of like uh, breast cancer or diabetes, largely what we're seeing is not a deficit in terms of one being, being able to take care of yourself, but largely what we're seeing is the impact of stress, racialized stress, as well as sexism. You said race and gender in terms of the different things that can impact um, or well-being. Do you find that the trauma that we experience is more so as a result of our interaction with society or is it like us in terms of like ethnocultural factors? It's really, it's both. We can't speak of one without speaking of the other. So largely it's systemics and it um, really stems from like how our ancestors' bodies were treated during the transatlantic slave trade. It's also the result of, through the process of slavery and colonization, how uh, we have been conditioned to relate to one another. So the racial trauma, I'm guessing, would be the added experiences that come with identifying as a part of a racialized community, yes? Yes, but not just being a part of a racialized community, but the impact of white supremacy. Like, we can't talk about racialized trauma without talking about the exploitation of racialized bodies for a profit. Largely why capitalism is so successful today um, because of the enslaved labor of African folks. So you can't talk about those things without talking about um, the history of white supremacy, especially when we're talking about black folks. We are talking largely about the impact of slavery. So often when people think about slavery, they're thinking about, yeah, 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 that happened a few hundred years ago. But actually the reality is that there's people like that are alive today that have experienced experience slavery, like people that are in their late 90s that do have a connection to slavery. Not just the historical piece, but there are some evidence that, you know, suggests that people, even in utero, experiences the stress of their mom, right? So that stress is like, again, some of the factors that I talked about earlier around racialized trauma in terms of not being believed by a healthcare provider or being underdiagnosed or being and overdiagnose discrimination in the workforce. So these are all components of racialized trauma, but we can't just talk about it, you know, in silo in terms of the here and now. We largely need to connect it with the past and how the impact of slavery like lives on in our cellular level on a really deep level. Tasha and I had some discussion earlier where it says like trauma travels through generation. How does that present? What does that look like? Largely when we are talking about generational trauma, largely the literature is situated um, in Indigenous communities. And then later we saw some literature with folks who experienced the Holocaust. Then we saw some literature there. The literature on Black folks is not 
as vast as those two populations that I've talked about, but I'm hoping that changes. But what we do know based on the literature is that we don't know how it shows up in the gene, the expression of like the racialized um, stress, but we do realize it impacts the mother and it impacts the baby in the womb. So there's a piece that is unexplainable why trauma is passed on from generation to generation. The other piece is like a cultural piece, right? So what we are taught about ourselves, are we taught that we're less than? Are we taught that we come from a very rich history? Are we just taught that our beginning started at slavery? So all these cultural pieces of learning impacts how people relate to their families as well as how they relate to their self, which also carries on the legacy of intergenerational trauma. There's a thing that they say that trauma that's not transformed will transfer. So it means if you don't heal from it, then you pass it on to your kids. So maybe that's one of the ways that it goes from generation to generation. Possibly. I've heard that as well. I have a hard time with that piece Mm -hmm. because it assumes that healing has to happen at an individual level, which there's some value to that. But largely the reason why people are experiencing racialized trauma is for systemic reasons. It's like it's our educational system, it's our prisons, it's our healthcare. Um, so in many other institutions, why people are experience high levels of stress. So it's hard to talk about healing if we're not talking about dismantling these systems that separates families, um, that passes on really the gene of trauma. So before we get into the healing component, in terms of a person's experiencing trauma, what are some of the signs or symptoms of that? Like what is the emotional response? What's the behavioral response? What are we supposed to be looking out for? So with trauma, typically there's many responses. So there's not one singular response. Some people may express symptoms that look similar to depression. So that can be lack of appetite, it can be increase of appetite, sleeping all the time, not sleeping enough, you know, um, disengaging in their relationships with people. So some people who are traumatized will have more depressed symptoms. Some people have more anxious symptoms where they feel restless, they feel on edge, they're looking over their shoulders, they don't feel safe. And there's other people who experience being traumatized, but they come across as being angry all the time, irritable, difficulty, um, de-escalating conflict. So it's hard to just look at a person and just say, hey, these are the symptoms, this person must be traumatized. Mm -hmm. It just really develops a deeper like investigation of like, what are the multiple stories people are walking around with? In my experience in my work, it's it's a rarity that I just meet one person that had one single event of trauma. As I get to know folks, as particular folks that are Afro and Indigenous, a lot of the trauma likes from really early on into childhood and their their mother as well, their grandparents. It's all everything together, really. Do you think, or have you found in your practice where persons have gone through traumatic experiences but do not exhibit any symptoms at all, so they're just carrying on as nothing happened? Yeah, so some people don't have any symptoms. There are people that you know, come across as being really functional, they're able to work a nine to five job, they are able to maintain relationships. 
it kind of goes back to like that million dollar question, essentially, why do some people have traumatized symptoms and other people don't? Mm -hmm. You know, there's been a lot of research around resiliency um, in terms of that possibly being a factor. But the reality is no one really knows. A lot of experts have educated guesses, but we're just really at the tip of the iceberg in terms Mm -hmm. of understanding um, how people experience trauma and why some people express it and some people don't. If you haven't already, we want to pause to remind you to connect with us on Instagram at Point Black the Podcast. Episode one of our book club Between the Covers is up, so we invite you to head on over and check that out and then join us this Sunday for our review of chapter two of Rennie Edelage's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And remember, you can also listen and leave us voice messages on Anchor with your thoughts and feedback on any of our discussions. If there is a topic that you'd love for us to discuss, or if you'd like to sit with us on one of our upcoming episodes, go ahead and drop us a message on Instagram or email us at pointblackthepodcast at gmail.com and we'll be in touch. Like a small boat on the ocean sending big waves into motion like how a single word can make a heart open i might only have one match but i can make an explosion another thing i wanted to discuss is our relationship to trauma in terms of how we view it within the black community i think a lot of the narrative around it is for it to be hidden as opposed to identified addressed and like explore opportunities for healing how do you think we can change that narrative where persons are more comfortable exploring what's happened to them or happening to them I think, uh, and I think about this often because there's a lot of people who, A, don't know, they know something is wrong, but they don't know they're in distress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they are, maybe family has passed this, said, oh, this is just this person's quirk, just the way they are, which creates like a barrier towards people receiving help and even identifying that they need help really The only thing I can think of in terms of breaking down possible stigma around healing work and talking about trauma and how it impacts our mind and body is um, possibly just having like community events when it's safe to do so. I think could be a big part in terms of having different types of healers there and having people have the experience of being able to ask questions about what is healing work when we're talking about trauma. I think a lot of community engagement needs to happen to sort of like break down those barriers. So people can either can either A identify like this is not healthy, what I'm experiencing, and B have a better understanding like what are the resources for help. So you touched on the community events. Are there any other ways that we can show up for people who are experiencing trauma? The key piece is validation. Often people don't share um, their experience of trauma because they are worried or concerned they won't be believed. Mm -hmm. Or um, their experience will be trivialized and say it's not that bad. You know, I had it worse. 
So a lot of times people don't speak their experience. So the key is if someone feels safe enough to share, just to believe them, um, to affirm, not to have the answer. Sometimes people want to have the answers right away because it's uncomfortable to witness people's pain and discomfort. But just be just holding space is the key piece and really taking the person's lead of like, if there's next steps, what are they? Because mm-hmm. uh, sometimes people just feel like a sense of relief being able just to simply share like this horrible thing happened to them. Mm-hmm. Another thing is, Sometimes people go through experiences and they're traumatized and they will share that with you. But after a while, we like, oh, you should have gotten past this by now. Your grieving process should end by now. What is a grieving process like? Because I'm sure it's different for everybody. When I look at typical textbook of the grieving process, it talks about denial. It's talking about shock. It's talking about acceptance and the reality when we're talking about grieving, it lasts as long as it does. There's many factors why some people's healing process is longer than others. History is a big component of why some people will grieve longer than others. Social support is a big key factor in terms of does the person feel supportive? supported rather. People can have a lot of people in their life, but they don't feel supported at all. They don't feel like they have a deep sense of community. So that's a key factor in terms of people's healing process. People feel like they have permission to talk about what their loss is. So often people don't feel like they have permission to talk about whether it's an actual grief of someone they love who have died or maybe it's grief of childhood. Maybe the person's childhood has been taken away because of abuse, trauma. Often people don't feel like they have the space to talk about it. And often when the people are being shut down, it's usually by people that feel uncomfortable with the subject matter, why they're getting the feedback, oh, shouldn't you be over by this? But the reality is there's not a timeline. Uh, grieving is, you know, what I like to remind people. It's a really messy experience. You may go through a period where you feel like you've accepted the loss, but then become triggered, reactivated, and feel withdrawn and don't feel interested in people or life again. So it's not a straightforward process. It has a lot of loops and a lot of peaks and valleys. So speaking about triggering, how can we limit our exposure to racial trauma? Like what's within our capacity to do as a people? So we can't eliminate being triggered, unfortunately, because as we mentioned before, systemically nothing has changed. So the re-triggering will happen again. But in terms of doing simple things that are within your um, you know, power, limiting your exposure to media, often people become re-traumatized by images in the media of black folks dying, um, listening to graphic details of how they died their history. So that's like really a simple way. Feeling comfortable to say no to people, that's all they want to talk about, is really important. Mm-hmm. Being Giving yourself permission to say you don't have the mental space to talk about the subject matter right now is really important in terms of reducing your exposure to racialized trauma. Doing those little things are really important because big picture stuff you know, there's no prevention being triggered in terms of the big picture stuff at all. And there's some people on social media that I have had to unfollow 
just for my own mental health sake. Or people have called me to discuss the matter. I'm like, you know what? I can't talk about this. No, I don't want to talk about it. So simple things like those. It's hard to do sometimes because you don't want to disengage, but it's necessary. So important for your mental health, right? Because mm-hmm. going back to circling back, like why rest is so important. A part of the healing model is, you know, that people need rest. So their nervous system can become online. And so they're not walking on eggshells or they're not shut down and sleeping for days. Without rest, if people cannot heal, their body is going to be on high alert and waiting for danger. So talking about healing and rest, I want to talk about the different types of therapy that's available. Because a lot of persons, when they think about therapy, they think therapist, there's a couch, you're laying down, somebody's taking notes. That That's the standard approach that's been depicted in media. So what different types of services are available for persons wanting to work through their traumatic experiences? There's a lot of modalities that focuses on um, trauma. So there's something called cognitive processing therapy, which was developed to treat people with post-traumatic stress syndrome. There is EDMR, um, which is just stands for rapid eye movement treatment therapy. And then there's others like somatic approaches where you're working with the body to process healing. But when we're talking about racialized trauma and processing, the modalities are limited. I encourage people when they are looking for someone to process racialized trauma to look for a therapist that has an anti-racism theoretical approach or an anti-oppressive approach or something along those lines is really important. If you're really unpacking um, in the intergenerational trauma, you need a therapist that has a good understanding of how that works. What does that look like? Otherwise, you'll get a therapist that's going to use a very Western modality and ignore race, ignore gender, ignore intergenerational trauma. It's really important to find a therapist that understands that Black folks' experiences on this planet is different. And that is the kind of work that you do, correct? Yes, Absolutely. Okay, so I think that's a great note for us to wrap up on. If persons are listening and they want to get in touch with you in terms of accessing your services for support, where can they find you? So they can find me on Psychology Today. Um, They simply just need to Google search Melissa Taylor, Psychology Today. Also, another um, database that people can check out is the Black Therapist List, um, Healing in Color, And there's another one that I just found out um, called Black Girl Feels, Mm -hmm. which is uh, where you can find therapists um, in Ontario, as well as Canada, uh, that practices. Um, Because Psychology Today um, web browser is the worst. So good that you just gave all those resources, because a couple weeks ago, I was trying to find a Black therapist, and it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. We're hard to find for some reason. They exist, but we just don't know how to find them or where to find them. But I guess that's one of the positive sides to this is that they've really come to the forefront now so that you can find them more readily. So thank you so much, Melissa. I think this has been an educational chat for me, for sure. (laughs) I've learned things that I didn't know prior to this. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for having me.
On the next episode, we turn our attention to black beauty as the standard. We'll be in discussion with Selena Caesar Siobhan. Join us then. Bye, guys.